0: Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 7. Uh, You can also bookmark Hebrews 11. So, Acts chapter 7 and also Hebrews 11. Today and next Sunday, we are going to look at Stephen's speech. Uh, This speech he gives while under arrest before the Sanhedrin. It's one of the longest narratives uh, that were given in the book of Luke. Um, Whether uh, you believe it's a speech, a sermon, um, however you classify uh, this dialogue, it's the longest one we have in the book of Acts. Um, This speech is going to lead to Stephen's death. I think I'm not spoiling anything there for you. Uh, I think we we know where this is going. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, um, Stephen is going to be the first martyr in the early church. I'll remind you, um, just so we're on the same page, a, a martyr is a person who dies for his or her beliefs. So a Christian martyr is specifically someone killed because of his or her her witness to Jesus Christ, and Stephen is going to be the first. It's the reaction that his words are going to produce, and Stephen surely knows this. He knows where this is going. He's not surprised. He's not in the dark, and and still he faithfully uh, delivers this uh, this speech. He's also answering two specific charges— Um, You remember, he's under arrest. He's been brought before the religious leaders. He's been brought before the council. This all started because he was in a Greek-speaking synagogue, and the members present in that synagogue were disputing with Stephen, and they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so these frustrated individuals decided to fight dirty. They instigate men to lie and to bear false witness against Stephen, to stir the crowd up so that they would be uh, sympathetic to the arrest of Stephen. Um, If you look back at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 6, you can see the charges that uh, they've set before Stephen. Now, earlier they were slightly broader. It was just simply, well, he's blaspheming God and blaspheming Moses. Well, they're a little more specific in 13 and 14. We see they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So there are two charges here. Number one, Stephen is attacking the temple, they say. He never ceases speaking words against the holy place. He quotes Jesus who said that he would destroy the temple and then in three days rebuild it. So that's charge number one. Stephen is attacking the temple. Charge number two is that Stephen is attacking the law of Moses. He speaks words against the law. He's wanting to change the customs that Moses delivered to us. This law that is so precious and sets us apart, he wants to change that as well. So what we're going to do for the next two weeks is we're going to look at these two charges. We're going to look at charge number one this week that Stephen is attacking the temple and then Lord willing, next week we will consider charge number two, that Stephen is undercutting the customs handed down from Moses. He's dismantling the law of Moses. So that's kind of the setup for where we're going. It's also important for us to know exactly what is happening here. And it's that Stephen is exposing the sacred cows of his day. I think we all know what sacred cows are. They are things that cannot be criticized. You cannot oppose them. You cannot question them. You have to leave them alone. Sacred cows, especially in church life, I guess all the time, but we're familiar with them in church life especially, are are things that, are not essential to the faith and yet people act like they are. They're things that are not essential to the faith and yet, from the way people talk and act, you'd think they were. And once something is elevated to this point where it is central to the faith, you can't touch it. You can't criticize it. You can't change it. You could never remove it. I'm sure all of us have different memories and experiences with sacred cows that we have encountered. I mean, they're probably as various as the stars in the sky. Maybe, maybe uh, an organ at some point was a sacred cow. Maybe a carpet color was one. Or a building. Maybe even a pastor has been elevated to that position. Can't criticize, can't change, can't remove, can't oppose, can't question. Things that are non-essentials are made essential, and once that happens, they are beyond any meddling or any questioning. Well, in Stephen's day, one of those was the temple. It was absolutely central to their faith. It was sacred. In the, the text I, I just read They say, he speaks words against the holy place. That's what it was called, the holy place. It's still like that to this day, by the way. Um, If you know church history, you'll know that the first temple, which was built by Solomon, was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And then the second temple that was rebuilt is destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. And by the way, it has never been rebuilt you can go to the Temple Mount today. You can get on a plane today, fly to Israel, go to the Temple Mount, and there is no temple there. There's a mosque. And any Jews are resigned to pray at the western wall, the, the only remains of this retaining wall that surrounded the temple. There's this remaining Jewish belief that the divine presence Never departed the temple, and after the temple is gone, the divine presence never departs this western wall. And so they will go to this wall, and they will lament the destruction of the temple. They will cry out, and they will wail. They will lament over the destruction of the temple, and they will also pray for the restoration of the temple. You've probably heard this wall called the Wailing Wall. That's where the name comes from. They'll go to this wall and lament the destruction of this temple. You can go and see that today. And if that's how the Jews today felt, feel about a retaining wall, just imagine how strongly they must have felt about the temple. The temple in Stephen's day was almost entirely covered in gold. It was a massive structure built on Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, up on this high point. So if you were far off approaching the city, you could see it on the skyline, this beacon, this golden beacon glistening above the city. And the priests who served there loved it. They were proud of it. I think in much of the same way, a, a minister today who serves at one of these historic cathedrals that people will travel to just to visit and to see and behold the cathedral, those ministers there must be filled with pride because of the beautiful structure in which they labor. They, they love it. They're connected to it. Well, the Jews in Jerusalem loved this temple, and so the comments made by Jesus— and repeated by Stephen and others, greatly offended them. Do not question the temple. Their defense of this beautiful building is one of the things that drives them to stone Stephen because he dare expose one of these sacred cows. Now, I want us to know, I want to give you Just one sentence that's going to define everything we're about to talk about. Stephen responds to these charges. He makes clear that this is a sacred cow, that this temple is not essential, it's not foundational. Actually, it's passing away because the temple has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And here's the resounding point Stephen is going to make over and over and over again that you can take home and is easy to remember and understand. God is not limited to one particular place. He's not restricted to one continent. He's not restricted to one nation. He's not restricted to one zip code or one physical structure. The God of the Old and New Testament is always with his people, no matter where they are, no matter where they go. He is the God who is present with his people. That's the main point. And that point is going to undercut the importance and centrality of the temple, and the Jews of the day don't like it. So before we read our text, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we gather in this place and stop for a moment and acknowledge that you are with us in this place as well. There's nothing special in and of this place. This this place is made special. It is made holy by uh, the gathering of your people and your presence meeting here with us. So God, would you speak to us now uh, through your word? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 7, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read uh, to verse 53. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob... Of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt. And he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem. And laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he "...defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt." This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us Out from the land of Egypt, we we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away, and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the, house of, uh, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So the truth here that Stephen illuminates regarding the temple involves God's presence with his people. Stephen does a survey in biblical theology. He's tracing the one story of God, this one thread that weaves its way throughout all of redemptive history. And he looks at these examples of Abraham and Joseph and Moses, of David and Solomon. And he, t- he shows them something about God's presence, God being with his people, and it's, This truth that we've already mentioned, that God was never confined to the holy land, to Canaan, let alone a physical structure such as the temple or tabernacle. Stephen is saying to them, you've made this beautiful man-made structure essential to your faith. You're basing your security and your assurance on this man-made building. You believe the nearer you are to this temple, the closer you come in proximity to the presence of God. But I want to show you that God has never been confined to this land or this building. A couple of things here. There, there's a connect. You better believe there's a connection between the mention to the golden calf as being works of their hands, and then this temple being a work of their hands god says later his house is in heaven heaven is his throne we'll see later the city that is built by god so there's a connection there but there's also this tendency that has always been there for the people to have security and assurance because they have the temple If you go back before the Babylonians come in and destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple, everyone was just sitting around saying, hey, we've got the temple. We're going to be fine. You can read in Jeremiah. You can read in Lamentations. They think they're going to be fine because, hey, we have the temple. How mistaken they were. So Stephen is going to trace this thread all through redemptive history and look at these main players from the Old Testament, and he begins with Abraham in verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Who appears? The God of glory. The one true God. The creator of the heavens and the earth. The God who is weighty and majestic and holy, the God of the patriarchs appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, where was Mesopotamia? It was a portion of what is now uh, Iraq. And then there's also mention of Haran, which was an ancient city, which is located current, well, its location is southeast modern-day Turkey. Turkey. So you've got Iraq, you've got Turkey, and that's where the God of glory appears to Abraham. And notice, God appears to him. It's not that, it's not like God is camped out on Mount Zion and he calls Abraham from a far distance. Like he's in, he's in Canaan. Abraham, Abraham is hundreds of miles away in Mesopotamia, and so God calls him and says, Hey, I want you to. Come to the land that I will show you. No, God does not call Moses from the holy land and tell him to come on over. No, God appears to Abraham in modern-day Iraq. Stephen is reminding them of something they all knew. This this man from whom they proudly claim their lineage was from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. That's where the God of glory first appeared. Canaan, the land, the the, the temple Mount Zion does not have a monopoly on the presence of the living God. Stephen continues in verse 4. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet... He gave him no inheritance, not even a foot's length. So Abraham is now out of Mesopotamia. He's in the land of Canaan in which they are now living, so that's, that's good. They're excited about that. But he didn't own any property. He did not own one square inch, one foot's length of this land. He never owned any property in the what we call the Holy Land. But God was with him. God spoke to Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham and made the promise that even though Abraham had no child, his descendants would be more than the stars in the sky and more than the sands on the seashore. Stephen is reminding them that God was with Abraham. God blessed Abraham, and that blessing was not limited to a particular zip code. Abraham was not obsessed with the physical dirt in front of him. He lived by faith, looking for the true land of promise that is to come. You know, after we take the Lord's Supper, and we're going to sing our final song in one of I think it's it's the is it the first stanza. No, it's the second stanza. You can see by faith our fathers roamed the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. That's what Abraham was looking forward to. His hope was not in a patch of dirt in the land of Canaan. It was in this holy city. And we see this, uh, we see this made clear in Hebrews. If you turn to Hebrews 11 really quickly. Hebrews 11, I want to read verses 8, 9, and 10 to you. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham never made the promised land his own. He lived there as a stranger. He was a pilgrim. His descendants that come after him did not have permanent dwellings. They lived in tents. they looked ahead in faith to a permanent building, a city with unshakable foundations whose designer and builder is God. I want to remind you that this is not some unique hope only held by Abraham. This is the hope of every Christian. Now, you and I might refer to Corinth or Mickey or Tishamingo or Counts as, as home. But if we're really specific and really technical with our language, we know that this is not really home. This is not our forever home. Our current dwelling is temporary and we are pilgrims who look forward in faith To the heavenly city whose designer and builder is God. Our hope is not found in a particular patch of dirt or a particular nation. Our hope is not found uh, in the United States of America. I say this in somewhat jest, but our hope is not found in Mississippi or Tennessee not becoming like California. Our hope is not found in Western civilization standing firm and continuing for not only our lives, but the lives of our children and grandchildren. As Christians, we look forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The land in and of itself is not the blessing. God appeared to Abraham and blessed him. And it had nothing to do with some particular, quote, unquote, holy land or holy mountain. As we keep moving on, we come to Joseph. Stephen gives us the cliff notes of the Joseph narrative. His brothers are jealous of him. They sold him into slavery. But in God's providence, this former slave is elevated to the office of prime minister of Egypt. And notice in chapter 7, verse 9, that the patriarchs are jealous of Joseph. They sold him into slavery, but God was with him. God was with him in Egypt. He was with him when he was in the pit. He was with him when he was sold into slavery. He was with him when he was falsely accused of attempted rape and thrown into prison. He was with him when he was made prime minister over what was probably the most powerful nation on earth at that time. You see a slight difference here between Joseph and Abraham. Abraham did not own a square inch of land. Joseph's family only owns a tomb. So, what do you got? What property ownership do you have? Well, we own a tomb at Shechem, family grave plot. That's all they had. But God was with them, with Abraham in Mesopotamia and with Joseph in Egypt. And then, what about Moses? Now, we're obviously going to talk about Moses a lot more next week as we think about the the, the law of God handed down. Uh, But keep thinking along these same lines. God was with Moses as an infant floating down the the Nile River. Don't imagine it was quite as eventful as the, the prince of Egypt makes it. But God was with him when he was abandoned and then found by the daughter of Pharaoh. God was with him in Midian where he fled after he killed the Egyptian and then met Zipporah and started a family. God was with Moses in the Sinai wilderness. And we see something astounding in verse 33. The Lord says to Moses, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Moses is not told by God. Uh, I'm sorry, Moses is told by God he is standing on holy ground. Now, is this ground the future location of the temple? No. Was it even in the land of Canaan? No. Somewhere in the Sinai wilderness, an area claimed by the Egyptians, or really no one. That wilderness is where the Lord, it's where Yahweh appears in a burning bush, and commissions Moses to return, saying, I will be with you. That same wilderness is also where the people will be led out of Egypt into. They'll be led into this wilderness. That's where they'll worship God. It's where the Ten Commandments and the law will be given. It's where they will construct the tabernacle. All in the Sinai wilderness. Holy land, holy ground is... Not exclusively found at the temple or in Canaan or in Palestine. Holy ground is wherever God meets with his people. As I mentioned earlier, this time of worship right now is holy ground. And it's an overwhelming thought that this corporate worship is not just some weekly meeting where we as Christians get together and encourage one another and check in and chat and small talk or even help each other. It's, it's where we meet with God. It's holy ground. If we meditate on that and really marinate in that thought, oh man, what would that do to our views on and our feelings about Lord's Day worship. God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He was with Joseph in Egypt. He's with Moses in the wilderness. And then next we have King David and his son Solomon. David has a desire to build the temple. He wants to build a house for God. He says man it's not it's not right that I live in this glorious house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. It's not right. We're told David had it in his heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant. And he would be allowed to make preparations for that house. But the construction of that temple would not begin until Solomon was on the throne. And by all accounts, Solomon's temple was spectacular. It was huge. It was lavish, ornate. Nothing like it would ever be built again. The oldest men and women who returned from the exile and they're watching this new temple being built, funded by Cyrus, king of Persia. They had to have mixed emotions at that joy that the temple is being rebuilt, but seeing it and seeing It's going to be nowhere close to Solomon's temple. It's not even going to be in the same league as Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was spectacular, and yet what is said of it? In verse 48, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And then there's a quotation of Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? Remember the main point we've been hammering. I mean, at this point, you have a difference. They own more than just a a gravesite. They've driven the people out of the land. They own the land. They've built a glorious temple. But the central truth still remains. God is not confined to this building or this nation. Paul says in Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. He is God of the whole world. So to answer this charge for Stephen, is Stephen undercutting the temple? Yes, he is yes he's not doing so in a sinful way but he's saying lord he's saying to the people guys our god is not confined he is going out there are going to be gentiles who will be brought in this is not the god of israel not the god of the land of canaan this is the god of all the world he's saying you missed it you're trusting in a building you're trusting in a zip code instead of looking ahead To the city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. You are looking backwards. You're placing all your hope in this man-made structure. This structure that was meant to point you to the righteous one. There's a gospel call here. A call for us to not trust in the things we make with our hands but to put all our trust in and to glory in and to find fulfillment in and to find security in what God has made with his hands and the work he continues to do. Very near the end of Stephen's speech, in verse 52, Stephen finally mentions the righteous one. He mentions the one who is betrayed and murdered, the righteous one who has fulfilled the temple, the one who is the real temple. He is the place of mediation between a holy God and sinful men and women. He is the one who goes into the Holy of Holies and makes atonement for our sins. He is the one who still represents us today as our great high priest and intercedes for us. He is the one who, upon his second coming, will usher in a new heavens and new earth where creation will be restored, all things will be made new, the curse will be reversed, and we will live in that heavenly city whose foundations and builder and designer is God. That is our great and final hope, that one day, someday hope That this is not our home, but that our Lord has gone ahead to prepare a place for us. And in his time, he will bring us home to be with him, where he is. In the meantime, he has given us his spirit. And just like Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon, he is with us. And we don't have to make special pilgrimages. We don't have to visit special buildings or a special land God is with us here and now. His Spirit indwells us. What a great comfort and assurance that is! Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would we uh, would we come to know and to feel and experience You as a God who is present? a God who is near. We know at various times and for various reasons you turn your face away. Maybe it's to discipline us in some way. Maybe it's to loosen our grips on this world. Maybe it's to, to teach us something or to chastise us for unrepentant sin. there could be multiple reasons. But God, we ask, we plead that you would turn your face towards us, that you would be present, you would be near, that we would, we would know that we don't have to go to some special place or some special building, that you are near. You have given your spirit to every man and woman, every boy and girl who professes faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, would, would we rest in that? And would we look forward to, not Not things made by human hands, but all things that are made by your hands that will last forever. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.